Welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast with Dr. Laura May. Hello and welcome to the Conflict Tipping Podcast from Mediate.com, the podcast that explores social conflict and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Laura May, and today I have with me Dr. Samantha Hardy, Conflict Management Specialist, Coach, Mediator, Director of CCI Academy and fellow Australian. Welcome, Sam. Thank you, Laura. You're not in Australia anymore, though, are you? You're a long way away. I, I It's true, but I think I'm still allowed to call myself Australian. That's what my partner oh, yes, says. Yes. So. <laughs> Anyways, so Sam has her PhD in law and conflict resolution and is a well-known trainer and university educator who's worked in Australia, Hong Kong, Singapore, the USA, and an hour ago online in Ukraine. She is also a prolific author and reader, and I encourage you to follow her LinkedIn page for ongoing book tips and reviews. She's a transformative mediator and narrative coach, the founder of the Real Conflict Coaching System, and provides coaching, conflict support, and training to managers and leaders across the world. She's also recently created a fabulous new course on working with emotions in conflict, though I think we will talk about that a little bit later. So Sam, today we're going to be talking a bit about emotions, narratives, and conflict. What led you down this pathway? Oh, that's a long story. I started out life as a lawyer. And then after about five years out of law school, I did a master's of law and I did a subject called alternative dispute resolution. This was in 1997. So quite a long time ago, showing my age. And they had an opportunity for people who were interested in mediation to do an extra two days training and get what was then a certificate three in community mediation. And for me, this course was just mind-blowing. I was working in litigation. Suddenly, I had experienced this way of talking with people, getting them involved in the process. It really was like an epiphany. And much to the horror of my friends and family, I quit my job as a lawyer um, and I decided I was going to be a mediator. But in 1997, you you couldn't have a career in mediation in Australia. It wasn't really a thing. There were some community mediation centres, but you couldn't really make a living out of it. So being the nerdy kind of reader that I was, I decided I'd do the next best thing, which is I'd go and do a PhD on the topic. And I would really find out everything I knew about mediation and conflict and all of that sort of thing. So I went back and I started teaching in law schools and and did my PhD. And I started out looking at why people when they went to court, weren't happy. And I was trying to figure out why mediation was better. And for me, it was something to do with their ability to talk about it and, you know, all the stuff that's in the canon of why mediation is a great way to resolve conflict. Mm-hmm. But I thought, oh, there's something to do with lawyers. I, I had it in my head. Lawyers are somehow ruining people and making them more adversarial and breaking them. Um, so I was going to try and solve this problem. Yeah. I know, I know. And so I went... <laughs> <laughs> I went and I interviewed all these. Yeah. <laughs> interviewed all these people who had had what I called, in a very technical sense, an injurious experience, mm-hmm. um, and that they blamed somebody for it. And most of the people I interviewed thought I was a psychologist. I didn't tell them I was a lawyer. And when I say interviewed, I didn't really interview them. I was sat down with them at the time. I had one of those little mini disc players, you know, that mm-hmm. like a mini CD to record. It was like the highest tech of the moment. I was so excited about that. So I'd turn it on and I would say to them, all I want you to do is just tell me what happened. Mm-hmm. Take as long as you like. Tell me what happened. I'm not going to interrupt. And I would just let them go. Mm-hmm. And what people did was tell me a story. And the only, most of them talked for around 20 minutes. There was one or two that I had to stop because they were going forever. But most people talked around about 20 minutes. And at the very end, I would ask them, the only question I asked them, did you see a lawyer about this? Mm-hmm. And my, my expectation was the stories of the people who had seen a lawyer would be different from the stories of people who didn't see a lawyer. And I did end up with two very distinct types of stories. And I couldn't, in, in the end, I couldn't, couldn't prove in any way whether the lawyer caused the, the problematic stories or the problematic storytelling people were the sort of people who would go to a lawyer. So mm-hmm. I got into a chicken and egg situation there. But what I did discover was this, this one very kind of dysfunctional way of talking about your conflict or what I call an injurious experience. Um, And then this other group of people, some of whom had had things much worse happen to them than the other group, who had this sort of resilience and this capacity to to grow from something that was 
you know, quite potentially harmful. Some of them had really bad things happen to them. One guy had become a quadriplegic and yet told this story about how it improved his life. Um, so I was intrigued by that. And then I started trying to figure out how am I going to describe these two stories? How am I going to explain the difference between them? And this is one of those weird serendipitous moments. As well as doing my PhD and teaching at law school, I was also studying a degree in French and French literature because that's what you do when you're a nerdy geek type person. Who... <laughs> so I got the nerd credentials up, yeah. I, I definitely do. Sorry about that. <laughs> but I was, read, I was doing a subject on French theatre and we, we were reading the plays of a French um, writer called Pixericor. That's probably a very bad pronunciation. And he was known as the father of melodrama. And mm. as I was reading the, his, his stories, his theatre plays, I thought this is like the dysfunctional story. So many of the, the way the characters were portrayed, the way the plot was laid out, the moral of the story, they fit these dysfunctional conflict stories. So I thought, okay, I've got my genre for, the, for that. I had to come up with the genre for the more resilient stories. And after looking at a lot, I ended up sort of having a bit of a toss up between comedy and tragedy. And mm -hmm. weirdly, ironically, which is kind of a really bad nerdy pun, ironically, tragedy won. Ironically, tragedy, that's probably not the best use of the word, but <laughs> I'll allow it. Counterintuitively, shall I say, counterintuitively, the tragic stories where the, the resilient stories fit the genre of tragedy. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because they told a story of life sucks and then you die, but it was that they understood the challenge they were facing. They were sort of on their own. They had to or they chose to manage it on their own. They took control. Sometimes they made the wrong choices, but at least they were making choices. And even if it didn't work out that well in the end, they learned something from it. They grew and developed as a person in some way. Mm. Um, and so that was sort of the beginning of my um, journey into conflict stories. And then the, the next step was how do we make the shift I mean how can I help people who are stuck in this dysfunctional story move into a version of a tragic story with some resilience and learning and growth and that's where the real conflict coaching system came in it was a process that I developed to help people make that shift you know that's actually really a really good jumping off point Sam because I have been reading your book conflict coaching fundamentals <laughs> working with conflict stories um, I've got it here in my hand. You definitely can't see it right now. Um, and I haven't finished reading it yet. But what I did myself in the first half of the book I've read so far, you know, you read these different stories that people have told you about the conflicts they're in. And you talk about, well, this, you know, this is the tragedy or, or what have you, or this is the sort of victim type story. And I was almost gaslighting myself. I'm like, oh, what? I'm thinking about every conflict I've ever been in. I'm like, well, you know, what, what did I do there? Did I not do enough to save this relationship? Like, how do I move into the other story? Like, what's going on here? So I'm glad that you're maybe telling me that in the second half of the book, I'll, fi I'll find out how to tell people like myself, jump from this story into this one. Is that, is that what I'm hearing? Good. Yes, yes, you'll definitely develop some skills. The second half of the book talks about what I call the six shifts that the yep. story needs to make. And they're, they're, they're really basic things like going from a position of simplicity or a story that's very simple into a story mm -hmm. that's complex and nuanced, going mm -hmm. from a sense of certainty into a sense of uncertainty. There's a couple of kind of thematic shifts that we can make quite easily we can support people to make it quite easily that just opens up so many new choices opportunities for learning and growth uh, it certainly makes a lot of sense and I will look forward to reading that second half so I can stop gaslighting myself um, <laughs> but I mean what you just said now in terms of yeah making this this shift from like really simple black and white type thinking into more complex thinking I mean that's something that, that can be quite hard to do though right that's something we suffer from every day it's just our brain saying, let's take a shortcut. Let's make life easy. We need to worry about things like what to have for dinner, not about this problem, right? So, I mean, can you give us in really broad terms, <laughs> so people want to read your book as well, which I'm sure they will, like what would be the first thing you would say to someone in that kind of situation to get them out of this really black and white and just the more mm -hmm. gray, complex way of thinking? Yeah. I think there's a couple of things to, to set in place first. It is, it is a challenging shift to go from, 
everything being right and wrong, very clear, certain. Um, so you have to make people feel safe enough to, to become vulnerable, as Brene Brown would, would say. But there's a fine line too between going overboard and making the complexity so so big and overwhelming that people can't can't function, can't move through it. So it's about finding a balance. Um, there's a really good book, I can't remember the author, called The Paradox of Choice that talks about that tension between choice is a good thing, but after a certain point, it becomes overwhelming and we lose the capacity to, to keep processing. Um, so I think one of the things as a conflict resolver that that can help a lot is just to ask lots of questions for detail for no particular purpose. So mm -hmm. rather than, you know, what the kind of getting to yes people would say is ask people about their underlying interests, drill down into their underlying needs and concerns. Yes, that's useful, but also what can be really useful is just asking for more detail, asking mm -hmm. people for a little bit more context, a little bit more history, what happened in between the dramatic events that are part of their simple story to give it a little bit more, I don't know, balance sometimes. Mm -hmm. And part of that actually is going to relate to, I assume, the sort of conversation we might have about emotions in that we typically remember more clearly the negative events and we don't remember positive events if we're feeling negative at the moment because we're in conflict with someone we we can easily remember the negative events or the dramatic events we find it harder to remember the neutral events or or even the positive events um, and so just asking people for detail without any particular purpose not pointing out inconsistencies not reality testing just getting them to fill in the gaps in a non-threatening, supportive way, people accidentally notice things that, that were there but they haven't been paying attention to, often because their emotions are filtering them. Fantastic. And you have given me a, a good leaping off point to ask about emotions, Sam, <laughs> so thank you very much. Very considerate of you. So then what is the connection actually between this work you've done previously on, on these narratives um, in interpersonal conflict and your more recent work on emotions? What's the link there? It's funny, when I started doing the work on emotions, I hadn't decided that there was a deliberate link. They were two separate things that I decided, you know, were important and I wanted to explore and then I wanted to share with people because I thought it was helpful. But the more I've done the, done the work, the more I realise is stories like melodrama and tragic stories Mm -hmm. take us on an emotional journey they have a purpose that's driven by emotional goals the way we tell the story is driven by our emotions as we you know in response to the events into the in the content that we access in our memories and we present it wanting an emotional response from our audience often mm -hmm. if we want someone to rescue us or to you know go into bat for us we we need to motivate them and we motivate people by triggering an emotional response um, you know that motivation and emotion are, are from the same latin root so the purpose of our stories and what we want from our audience is heavily based on us getting an emotional response and i guess that's the, the difference in those two stories in a melodramatic story we're aiming for an emotional response from an external audience person who you know a father figure in in the genre who we want to come and save us from our woes in tragedy it's about emotional learning and growth it's about mm -hmm. us becoming aware of you know in think about the sort of stereotypical tragic stories the client the client the the um, <laughs> hero has this emotional moment where you know, it's often very um, confronting. Suddenly they realise something they really believed in or something they really loved and valued wasn't true, that it was wrong. And they had this emotional crisis, but it leads to them discovering something about themselves or the world they live in or how conflict works, for example. I mean, the, the hero in the second story does definitely sound um, like a very emotionally complete and more mature human in some ways, right? <laughs> But imperfect, but imperfect. Mm. Um, you know, in, in tragic theatre, we talk about the fatal flaw um, and that's the thing that sort of ruins their life. I think in our day-to-day -day tragic conflict stories, it's not, it doesn't have to be a fatal flaw. It's just some little failing or mistake that we make that, that in conflict can escalate and have ramifications far beyond the little thing that happened to us. Um, it might be pride, our ego, our unwillingness to be vulnerable. There are a whole lot of little things that we might have in our makeup that might 
end up being the flaw that created or escalated the conflict. Um, but I think, so I think it's important in melodrama, if you want to be saved, you have to portray yourself as perfect. You mm -hmm. have to be perfectly innocent and pure. So you yeah. are not even, a, you know, consciously aware of things that you've done that have contributed to the problem. And you're going to be very resistant to going there because it's going to ruin your story, your identity. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in tragedy, it's okay to be imperfect. It's okay to make mistakes as long as you learn from it. And um, sometimes you learn too late and then life sucks and you die on the stage in tragic theatre. My goal is to work with clients before it's too late so that they can twist the ending you know like a choose your own adventure instead of going to the life sucks you die ending we we choose a different route and we turn it into something a little less tragic I suppose in terms of the outcome for sure and as you were talking about this idea of being a perfect victim in some ways just now it, it sort of reminded me of, of the literature I've read um in victimology and I love that that's the actual field name victimology um in that for example, if you are going to court or if there is sort of a, a violent crime, for instance, then unless the victim is perfect in some way, then it's less likely to go to court and then less likely to use, you know, that the perpetrator will be judged guilty. And, of course, perfect in this case is not just um, completely free of any activity that might have led to their becoming a victim, right, but also what they look like and where they're from and what their education level is. So it can be quite difficult I would say to be to be a perfect victim and so even if you're able to perform being a perfect victim for yourself say oh no you know I was I was absolutely nothing wrong in the situation of course it's it's all on me I mean when you're playing to your audience they still might have a very different perception as I as, as I suppose is exemplified in the the so-called perpetrator in your melodrama right they're gonna be like no 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 this victim ain't so perfect after all so yeah. it is, it is and what happens, the bad guy in a melodramatic conflict, of, a conflict mm -hmm. so you, when you have a conflict of stories, mm -hmm. what happens is the bad guy in one person's story is the melodramatic heroine or hero in the other. And yeah. so they're like, there's a fight for who's the actual villain and who's the actual victim. Um, and so there's a fight to, to sort of besmirch each other's virtue um, yeah. as a way to get heard. The other bigger societal thing, and I know your work is much more on a social scale, whereas I tend to focus on individuals and maybe very small groups like families or workplaces. Um, the question is who defines virtue? That can be a very, very challenging question to answer. Who defines the parameters of virtue? In classical melodrama, the virtuous heroine had to be of legitimate birth, a virgin and, and uh, you know, at least not ugly, but preferably yeah. beautiful. You and know, ideally and long they, hair for climbing up tower right. sides, right? That's yeah. right, that's right. So, you know, there were there were expectations of virtue that are very different from now. Um, mm. And now the expectations of virtue are often internalised. You know, we see ourselves as a good colleague or a generous person, but there are social requirements of virtue if you're a rape victim for example were you wearing a short skirt and fishnet stockings mm. that shouldn't be a criteria for whether or mm. not you get raped um, and mm. technically it's not but it's still there um, yeah. you know underneath <laughs> underneath the radar so to speak absolutely and I mean it's the it's sort of same story in terms of well um, you know are you white or not <laughs> and if uh -huh. you're not if you're as if you're a person of color then you're less likely to be taken seriously when reporting violent crime against you. Um, or as well, as so sort of interesting, there's sort of been a bit of Twitter and social media discourse these last few days about how this one chap um, was being um, basically bashed up by his girlfriend. That's probably not the proper way to put it. And so <laughs> he called the police and the police arrested him. And apparently, and I haven't done the figure check on this, that, yeah, if you're a male victim of domestic violence and you call the police, you're more likely to be arrested, at least in the U.S., because you're not a good victim, right? Yeah. So you don't fit into the sort of social victim role. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, virtuous behaviour, it differs for different people as well. And in, even yeah. in the what's appropriate in terms of a display of emotion. So there's a whole lot mm -hmm. of really interesting research about how um, it can be particularly risky for a person of colour to display anger in the workplace compared mm -hmm. with a white person. Well, there shouldn't be any difference. Um, yeah. There's gender and cultural expectations about 
what emotions you're supposed to experience and how you're supposed to display them. Mm -hmm. And they're not consistent. They're not equitable. No, absolutely. Uh, it's quite interesting. Um, actually, so, so it's thinking about sort of these, these broader social conflicts. I remember I read this really fascinating paper about Brexit, right? Which is sort of like the US presidential campaigns can be and have been known to be the recent past. So this portrayal of one side as angry and irrational, right? But what this paper sort of talked about was, well, actually both sides describe them, you know, themselves as angry and the other side is angry and they're both justly angry, but the other side is angry and crazy. Like they make no <laughs> sense. They have no basis. Like our anger is justified. Of course, we're fighting for truth and all that lovely stuff, mm -hmm. but they're irrational. So it's really yeah. interesting that, you know, everyone, everyone's getting mad, right? Yeah. But the other side aren't legitimately mad, if that makes yes. sense. Mm. Sarah Cobb and I many years ago started working on a paper. We didn't actually ever publish it, but we looked at the narratives, the sort of propaganda narratives of the US government and ISIS. And it mm -hmm. was really really funny and intriguing to see that they were both as you just described with Brexit telling the same story characterizing each other as evil and trying to ruin our way of life and mm -hmm. you know that they, they were very melodramatic narratives of the other um mm -hmm. in the in the same way but ours we, yes we're angry but we're justified exactly the same um, yeah. dynamic yeah, so interesting. Well, this, this is what you were saying in terms of like, well, who wins the story? Who's the real hero? Who's the real victim? Who's justly angry and who is not justly angry? So, I mean, they're, they're very much intertwined, these, these narratives and these emotions, right? And I found it really interesting that you started from narratives and moved over to emotions. I actually went the other way around because um, in my research, I started with emotions. I was like, look, post-Brexit vote, I was like, wow, all my Remainer friends are really sad, um, and they, which is not the same emotion that was being expressed by Leavis, right? And then you sort of had these ideas of, like, um, Project Fear as the Remain campaign and Project Anger as the main campaign, but sorry, as the Leave campaign, but these were all deeply intertwined with sort of the, the strategies and who was being talked about and in what way, right? So, you know, the Leave campaign was very much portraying um the the eu as a villain right so you're allowed to get angry against them but i mean the way i sort of came to this word villain which obviously echoes so closely your own work is girls sitting there going if i'm really angry at someone what do i want to do i was like i want to call them something like what are they like how I'd, how do i describe this relationship and it took me a very long time to think of a word that was not a swear word to, to describe it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like Literature will save me. The other side is a villain and not anything less appropriate to say on a podcast, yeah. right? Um, so, but they are very deeply intertwined. And, you know, we look at George Lakoff's work and, and things in this area as well, and very similar, like, you know, our, even as far as they, uh, the pathways in the brain, like, you know, these stories and these emotions are just very difficult to extricate from each other. Yeah. But because we're talking about brains and... Oh, sorry. <laughs> I was going to say... You just Go. highlighted that very important difference that yep. there's, there's a, it's a completely different level to say you're wrong or you're morally wrong. Yes. And Agreed. once you have that, the villain, the moral villain part of it, yeah. then then there's there's no room for conversation. You know, you I can totally have a conversation agree. with someone who's wrong, but yeah. there's also that saying, you don't change someone's mind with information. You change someone's mind by getting connecting with their heart and their emotions, and you do that through a story, through narrative. Yeah. You don't do that by giving them data. Data never really changed anyone's mind. You have to make it tell a story that they can believe in and relate to absolutely and this was a, a key thing I, I sorry I'm now I'm just talking about my work I can talk about it all day no no um, do it's fascinating <laughs> but it was, it was something I found as well I mean there's this idea of like saying that um this I research specifically blame right and sort of like what blame did to us how it helps create villains how it makes us feel how it manipulates us what we can do about it it's a very short story um and it's sort of seemed to be this conflation of blame and name calling but to me, one of these things is you did something bad and the other is you are bad, which is what you're talking about here, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we need to be able to disentangle those two. It's the same as, you know, saying, oh, you did something good or you are good. And, you know, one can lead to the other. And you know, if you keep doing bad things, at some point someone's going to say, you know what, 
you might just be a sociopath um <laughs> but yeah. but otherwise there's a lot more wiggle room in this sort of gray area you were talking about before so it doesn't all have to be black and white which is I think yeah. quite important and that's the flip side of what we were saying before about how if you're the if you're the virtuous heroine you have to be mm -hmm. and I say heroine because in classical melodrama it was always a young woman um obviously in modern melodrama it can be a man typically in the way the story is constructed they're sort of emasculated they have feminine attributes so they're they're mm. And it's hard if you're a man trying to get get support through a melodramatic story it can feel very emasculating which is often why yeah, men don't yeah. get support but i'm getting off on another tangent but the <laughs> way what we what we were saying about the 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 innocent victim has to be pure and virtuous in the same way to to get the outcome which is kind of come up and my favorite word come up and of the bad guy which is really removing him from the situation by killing yeah. him or imprisoning him or banishing him we have to not let any room for doubt there we have to make mm -hmm. him entirely bad as well um mm -hmm. and and it's never that straightforward i don't think i've ever been involved in any conflict ever where someone was entirely good and someone was entirely bad mm. um, it makes us feel good especially if we're casting ourselves in the good in the good role to say the other person's bad but it shuts down any opportunities for conversation or, or movement because the only why would a nice girl like me talk to someone who's so completely evil yeah the only thing to do is to protect myself and shut myself off from them until someone comes and gets rid of them mm. so it sounds like black and white thinking is a is a big big problem then <laughs> we need to, so yeah. we need to redress that within ourselves in our interpersonal conflicts yeah. and in our social <laughs> conflicts as well <laughs> and sarah cobb talks about two shifts she talks about um before we're able before we're able to see the benefit of the doubt i suppose in the other we mm -hmm. have to create some doubt about our own role and mm -hmm. again one of the things that you do as an innocent victim is you avoid talking about anything that you've done you mentioned this before it, the only way you can stay completely innocent is to be completely passive and not do anything because anything you do is open to you know making a mistake or being interpreted as not perfect so you have to do as little as possible and distract attention from you doing anything um, and then on, on the other hand you point to all the things the other person's done asking uh someone who's in that helpless victim role questions about things that they've done very often results in them answering by suffering so you say when he did that terrible thing to you what did you do oh i felt sick i felt terrible i was mortified they they respond in feelings they mm. don't actually tell you what they did um, mm -hmm. and if you can get people to start talking about their past actions even without sort of kind of rubbing their nose in it i suppose they will sometimes remember or recognize or realize that yes maybe their actions haven't always been perfect and mm. only then will they be open to giving the benefit of, of the doubt to the the evil villain that 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 sarah cobb says the shift has to happen in that order so I have a question for you. I feel like I make every podcast about me, actually, because I want everyone to solve my problems while I'm talking with all these experts. Because it should be I, called Tipping Laura, the Laura Tipping <laughs> podcast. Laura Tipping. Oh, my goodness. Love that. It's a new Olympic sport. <laughs> oh, that's, that's extremely violent. I feel like I'm going to get a lot of bruises if I'm being tipped over anywhere, right? Um, because like, I find that when I'm in a conflict with someone, I'll, I'll sit down, even if I'm talking to a third person, and I'll sit down and say, look, this is the situation and these are the things I did wrong. So I'm actually immediately chipping away at my victim credibility. Is that a bad thing, Sam? Should I should I not be doing that? Should I be no, I think that's a great thing. Okay. But I mean, it's about balance. It's mm. about balance. I mean, I think it's a really important thing. If you can see the things that you've done, let's let's use the, the language of the difficult conversations. In, if you can notice the ways you've contributed to the situation yep. rather than being blameworthy or wrong, if mm -hmm. you can recognise that, then that opens up your opportunity to see the other person's contributions both positive and negative so i think it's an important step it, it might mean that you're more advanced than other people who or you've not been considering com conflicts in which you've been really really stuck in a victim role mm. you've allowed yourself to um to ask yourself what your contributions might have been without worrying too much that that turns you into the evil villain okay well you reassure me on on that front but You've also made me want to ask a more provocative question, not about myself this time. I feel I should clarify that. Um, 
what about, for example, in situations of domestic violence? Because we were talking about earlier, you know, what if you have someone who's been the victim of domestic violence and they say, well, you know, yeah, sure, they hit me, but, you know, I didn't have their dinner ready on time, for example. Um, like, at what point is it too much? And how do you sort of judge it, especially as an external party? How do you guide them on a pathway through a conflict like that? I think there's two distinct situations we're talking about here. That we're when I talk about people stuck in a melodramatic story, I'm talking about people whose story is divorced from reality. It's a version of events that doesn't match up with reality. I'm not saying that 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 there's never somebody who is a victim. There, you know, there are going to be people who are in who are the subject of coercive and controlling behaviours by others and really have little room to move. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, and so that sort of thinking from them is just exacerbating that situation their victimhood so mm. I guess that's a I mean for me it's a slightly different issue that's about screening very carefully um, the people that you're working with to ensure that it's not a situation in which they really are the victim of those sort of coercive and controlling behaviors most of the people I work with are not that's the story they're telling themselves that's the way they think about the situation but when you look at it objectively as an outsider you're like yeah so that person said something to you that was a little bit annoying or hit one of your triggers but doesn't seem to me like they were really out to get you and you know going to do some yeah. terrible harm to you um so I think that's an important distinction I'm not saying I'm not saying that no one is ever a victim I'm also mm -hmm. not saying that there are always things that people who are in a victim type role can do to help themselves because in those coercive controlling behaviors, there may be very little they can do to help themselves and trying to sell them a version of events or help them reframe their story into one where they're not so victimized is just going to put them at risk of harm. No, 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 sorry. I definitely phrased that wrong thing. Because so I was thinking more of the situation where they are saying these things and they have this idea that they cause their own victimization, but obviously that's that's untrue. Like they didn't do anything to, to deserve that. So in a situation, I mean, maybe this is more of a like, well, I would refer them to a, a psychologist slash domestic <laughs> violence counselor. But yes, yeah. I wasn't I wasn't trying to say that, oh, well, you know, you should have them see this gray area. I'm more about thinking like where victims actually sort of really question themselves about well, am I really a victim here? I mean, does that actually come up in the sort of situations that like you normally coach in as far as conflict goes? I think that if somebody's in that role where they're where they're buying into the other person's melodrama, when they're mm -hmm. agreeing that they're the villain mm -hmm. and that the other person is the victim, then firstly, they're unlikely to come for support because mm -hmm. they won't see themselves as worthy for support. So they're not the sort of people who turn up asking for my services. Yeah. Um, but also, they're probably the situations where the kind of coaching model that I'm talking about isn't mm -hmm. going to be effective. It's a sort of a situation where you actually need a, a melodramatic outcome. You need someone with power to come in and and take control of the situation and I think in that case you don't have two competing narratives you have one person who's in control of both people's version of events and they don't actually differ um, and the person with power is manipulating the other person to believe their narrative so their mm -hmm. own version of events becomes the one that they're being told or they're being forced to agree with for their own physical and psychological safety so it's for me it's not the same kind of conflict of competing stories that is what I deal with and what I'm more talking about. Yeah. Now, thank you for that clarification because, I, yeah, I, I was that was something I was definitely wondering about. Wow, we've gone to some really dark places. So <laughs> we have. <laughs> feel Let's that back. Lighten it up. <laughs> Goodness, I need to like shake it off, right? Um, okay. So, look, you know, before we were talking a bit about sort of narratives and sort of how they're intertwined with emotions and what have you. And so we had this idea of sort of, the, yeah, really being together there in our brains. But I know your view of emotions because um, I've been reviewing your course recently. So like, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you conceptualise emotions and discuss emotions in this course um, that you've been building recently? So as you know, we, we talk, Laura and I talk about this a lot. We're both um, big fangirls of Lisa Feldman Barrett, who wrote a yeah. book called How Emotions Are Made. Um, and one of the things that I discovered fairly recently, I suppose, is that the um, 
Emotions research in the last 10 to 20 years has developed exponentially, often because of increased technology around things like MRIs and, you know, we can study a whole lot of things that before we had to make assumptions about and, and extrapolate from our own experiences. And things have changed so much from what I was taught when I was doing mediation. I did a year of psych at university. It was really different back then. And one of the things that really startled me when I read that book is how much of everybody I know's kind of popular assumptions of how emotions work and what we need to do to manage them was based on all this really outdated research that was either really simplistic or absolutely misguided given recent research. Um, so it's taking a while for popular culture to catch up with the amount of research that's been happening in, in quality research in the last 10, 20 years. So one of the things that, that I really like, and I've been struggling a lot with how to um, explain this, articulate this clearly. So maybe, Laura, you and I can, can work on something together. But the crux of it for me is there isn't this thing called an emotion and this thing called a thought. In fact, mm -hmm. they're both thoughts. They're both ways of thinking. Um, and there may not be as much difference between them as we think. We categorize some sorts of thinking as thinking and some sorts of thinking as feelings, but they're actually using all different bits of the brain. There isn't like emotions aren't one bit of the brain and thinking another bit. Both mm -hmm. thinking and emotions in inverted commas are both using all different bits of the brain um, and actually are going, our brain when we think or feel is doing the same thing in both situations. Mm -hmm. the, the biggest distinction that I can come up with, and maybe you can add to this, Laura, is the speed that our emotional thinking tends to happen very quickly. It takes into account different different bits of information, bits of sensation, perception, past experiences, memories, little bits of it very quickly to give mm -hmm. us a quick response. Whereas what we think of as thinking does the same thing. We take into yeah. account what's going on, information, past experiences, but maybe it takes a little bit longer and we maybe incorporate a little bit more information into it. For me, that's the distinction between the two. It's really the, the quantity of processing and the speed. What mm. do, you, do you agree? Is that how you see it? I guess I see it as a little bit, a little bit different. I mean, what you've just said now really reminds you of Daniel Kahneman's work on these yeah, sort of two different. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you've got this like really fast thinking, heuristic, takes all kind of shortcuts, um, ways of processing information, right? Or even seeking information, which we would more typically consider emotional right? Just, you know, read a headline, have a reaction, move on, <laughs> try not to let it bother you the rest of your day. And then the system too, where, yeah, you're really taking time to seek out information and to mull it over and think about it and plan. And most of it, most of our thought obviously is the first type. Like we don't mull over most things we do each day, yeah. unless we're extremely neurotic, like guilty. Um, <laughs> but, but even so, like most of our thinking is that first one. But for me, as far as, um, I guess, a, a difference goes I mean I guess I'm less concerned about a difference I mean as, as you know you'll know as well I mean there's some cultures where there's not actually a linguistic separation between yeah. thinking and feeling because as you just highlighted yourself they're both just products of the brain and we just like to label them differently yeah. um, for me I guess the important part of emotion is that it is so deeply connected to our body Right. So because, I mean, the way that uh, Feldman Barrett really talks about emotions is this sort of idea of um, affect, which is your almost your physical symptoms or your information. So whether from your eyes, or your ears or, you know, the internal churning of your intestines and other other gruesome stuff um, and all of that information forms it sort of comes together with your knowledge that you've learned that, you know, that you've learned that a stomach ache means that maybe you're actually a bit angry at somebody um and then also the context that you know you're sitting there in a room and your stomach hurts and this person's there and you're like I might be a bit angry at you and so for me that bodily information is is really important because in sort of how emotions are constructed and how we create them but of course, that's not to say that when we're, you know, so-called thinking that we're not thinking, oh, well, I might be hungry later and our body is completely invisible. No, that's not it. Um, but it is, for me, it's that that really visceral component. Um, but I actually I find it really interesting that, you know, when we talk about nonviolent communication and, and mediation and what, and what have you, like 
one of those principles is separate thoughts from feelings, you know, like not, oh, I feel like you did a bad thing. So like, no, I think you did a bad thing and I feel angry or what have you about it. So it's interesting that we sort of try and actually artificially separate these in a way when we're trying to resolve conflict. Um, whereas in our brains, they're just kind of a big mishmash. And, you know, the problem with that is if we if we just talk about the emotions, particularly if we use those emotion labels that we're familiar with, you know, I was angry, that made me feel angry, that made me feel frustrated. Mm-hmm. What we lose is the information that we have used to construct that emotion in our mind. Mm-hmm. And so using that label, firstly, those labels are very imprecise. They cover very mm-hmm. broad categories. They can mean very different things in different situations. But if we if we just talk about the feeling rather than trying to articulate, it reminds me of this time and I was worried about this. If we can try and articulate our thought process underlying the emotions and sometimes recognising what's happening in our body underlying the emotion, it helps us either clarify and more clearly express our emotion or sometimes realise that it's the wrong emotion that mm-hmm. makes it helps us revise it. Um, and the example of which I was just reminded of that you were just implying in a way there is the hangries. You know, when you're hungry, yeah. it's interpreted as angry. And there's all that great research about how people, judges in particular, tend to refuse bail, for example, or parole hearings just mm-hmm. before lunch, whereas up just after lunch, the vast majority of their decisions are to grant it and it's a really great example of how we can misinterpret our bodily functions as thinking when it's I mean <laughs> you know what I mean that our bodily functions yeah. become our thoughts and, yeah. and affect how we perceive the world we're in but we're misinterpreting it I, I like you use that example of sort of the, the hungry judges. I did actually read a couple of papers that suggested that all was not, <laughs> that maybe that study wasn't totally accurate. But oh, I can't. Really? Yeah, which, so I'll, I'll forward that to you later on. You can have a read okay. and, and judge for yourself. Right. Pun always intended. <laughs> After I've had something to eat. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly right. So you will think about it. Um, but one that is, and again, it's going to a dark place, but. It's really interesting that people with PTSD, for example, um, even if their trauma is unrelated to sexual violence, can often be triggered by sexual situations. Because in our body, basically fear and sexual arousal are pretty much doing the same thing. And it's only the context and the knowledge that actually allows us to construct it as being horny, for instance. Someone (laughs) in my surveys and emotions, people actually wrote that as an emotion. I was like, I accept your labeling, okay. So, you know, are they horny or are they afraid? Um, and it's only that knowledge that allows us to go, well, th- this is the difference. And I think that really gets to the heart of it. So, like, this, you know, we need to go through and think, well, actually, what am I feeling and why? Am, I'm, am I misconstructing this? Okay. But does, and this is a very leading question, but, I mean, does this mean that we can actually just feel whatever we want whenever we want to, Sam? Can I just choose to be happy all the time? Is that how that works? (laughs) Oh, wouldn't it be good if it was that easy? I think one of the things, again, this is my interpretation of what I read, so feel free Mm -hmm. to give me a counter view if you don't think this is quite right. But my take (laughs) on it it is we, in a way, our... Our emotional profile, our habits of feeling certain feelings in certain kinds of situations is created by our experiences. And for me, it's a little bit like exercise. I I can just go along and, you know, I, I might tend to have... I don't know, stronger arms and legs because I do a lot of work with my arms and I very rarely use my legs. So I can just by accident kind of strengthen one part rather than the other. And I think the same thing could happen in, in my emotional profile. I could just tend to hang out with people who are angry all the time or I tend to be angry and so I get in the habit of being angry. I think what what I kind of, how I think about it is maybe I can choose to exercise the sorts of emotions that I would like to feel more, maybe I can go mm-hmm. looking for activities that will st- that will give me opportunities to create those emotions that I want more of and mm-hmm. sort of build those emotion muscles within my body so that I can then be less angry because I'm counterbalancing it by doing 
exercises in a way, activities that, that prompt me to be happy. So I think it's not like I'm just going to turn off my anger and decide to be happy. I think it takes work and practice and building up, actively looking for opportunities to develop those emotions rather than making a decision not to feel that way anymore because that doesn't work. So that's kind of my take on it, a little bit like exercising the emotions that you would like to have more of. Yeah, no, I totally agree. It's like they say, you know, neurons that fire together wire together. <laughs> and so if you keep using those little happy pathways, even though they're in different parts of the brain, et cetera, like you're, of course, you're able to create them more. And so when you were developing your course on emotions um, and obviously doing all the research, what surprised you the most? Look, I think the biggest surprise for me is how much is out there that mm -hmm. is directly related to conflict mm -hmm. that we as conflict resolution practitioners really don't know enough about and that there are so many interventions and things that we can do to support people not just to manage their emotions but to work with them we a lot of what we learn in our in our mediation training is let people vent remove toxic emotions um, kind of encourage people to be as rational as they can and then you'll get a good outcome I mean yes that helps to a certain degree, but there are so many more things we can do. So things like helping people um, regulate physiological side. And, you know, yeah. I hear people, as I say this out loud, I can hear listeners saying, we're not counsellors, we're not psychologists, you know, <laughs> we're not doctors, we can't give people antidepressants. No, that's true. But there are some basic things that we can do to help people regulate or to help people monitor how they're feeling so that when they engage in conflict conversations, they can be the best they can be. We can, we can help them prepare. We can help them let it, monitor and let us know in the moment if they need a break, for example. I think there's things we can do around people's emotional experience so we can help people understand that, an emotion is an experience that has a whole lot of different components, including our past history, our perception of the situation, um, the the context, whether we've had <laughs> whether we've had breakfast or a cup of coffee, yeah. um, what's happened to us on the way to the mediation room, how the mediation room looks and feels to mm -hmm. us, um, you know, what sort of music's playing, even. There's there's all sorts of things we can do to help people understand their experience, and then maybe make a few more conscious choices about how they respond to it rather than just feeling like it's controlling them. Then there's the emotional expression side. That is often what we talk about when we talk about managing emotions. It's like, don't let people yell and scream at each other. It's a very superficial understanding of expression. But again, there's so many things we can do to support people to consciously express their emotion in a nuanced way or not if it's not appropriate and sometimes it's not but also recognising the fallacy of this idea that we can understand what someone else is feeling, particularly by looking at their facial expression, yeah. that, that, that we're only ever, as Lisa Feldman Barrett says, we're only ever guessing and we're often guessing by paying attention to the wrong cues or not, not the most useful cues and engaging people in meaningful conversations where they can share with each other descriptions of how they're feeling in nuanced ways can do so much more and then lastly you asked a simple question I'm giving you a very long answer <laughs> Love it. The, yep. the idea of emotional reflection and particularly in my coaching work a lot of what I can do with my clients is to help them reflect on their emotional experiences in the past reflect on the ones that are working for them and the ones that aren't working for them and help them think about things like their emotional profile and strategies that they might want to take in relation to this particular person or this particular situation, but maybe bigger picture strategies to build up the emotion muscles of the emotions they prefer to be feeling. Mm. Um, so I just think there's so much we can do that's not just try and stop people from talking over each other and swearing, you know, and, yeah. and because emotion is so much a part of conflict, even if we pretend it's not, it is, mm. um, that we should be paying attention to it. We should be doing more on it. And it doesn't mean becoming a psychologist or a counsellor. We can do it within the boundaries of our role as a coach or a mediator or whatever. Absolutely. I totally agree. And I think it even extends as well to, to managers and leaders. I mean, certainly something I try and do with staff is, you know, ask them about, you know, what they need. And like, I like to ask them what they're feeling. And if I'm asking them a task, I'm like, all right, but how would you feel about doing this? And I feel like, man, I'm like, all right, well, 
let's just do something else. Like I'm not, I'm not here to like order you around, right? And I think that that emotional intelligence. I mean, we're hearing about it more and more as an essential leadership skill as well. So, I mean, you know, to be a mediator and a conflict coach and a leader, I mean, these are all things you're going to want to learn about, right? Emotions, how to express them, how to regulate, how to talk about them with others as well. The emotional intelligence term, I I heard Susan David talk um, at a conference recently and someone asked her what, so she wrote the book Emotional Agility. And someone asked her, what's the difference between emotional intelligence and emotional agility? And I thought her answer was really powerful. She said, Mm -hmm. you can use emotional intelligence for good or evil. If If you are good at regulating and managing and expressing your own emotions Mm -hmm. in a way that works for you and you're pretty savvy at interpreting other people's emotions and potentially manipulating them you can Mm. use emotional intelligence to become a dictator and build an atomic bomb or to try and promote world peace her take was emotional agility uses emotional intelligence ideas and techniques but it strongly links it to your values so she says Mm. before we start working on our emotions we need to identify our values because Mm -hmm. they should be the foundation of what we do with emotions and I thought mind blown I love it (laughs) I love that yeah how many people do you know though I can see people you know bullies in workplaces and those kind of narcissistic personality people you know I know a few of them and they are really smart and emotions but they use it for evil and I thought yes it's so true they're very emotionally intelligent but doesn't mean Mm -hmm. they're nice (laughs) yeah no I I have (laughs) I think that would be okay with me sharing this um I have a prior colleague who was actually diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder so a sociopath when they were quite young and they were in therapy and they continue to be in therapy years later. And of course, you know, they're very narcissistic and they are not insulted by me saying, yes, they're a sociopath because I figured that out pretty quickly. I was like, oh, you're a sociopath. They're like, yes, I am. <laughs> and obviously there's no emotional attachment there. Yeah. And so I have some really interesting discussions with this person t- sometimes. So I was trying to understand this, yeah, this idea of emotional intelligence, what you just described. Um, and they're like, well, yeah, like, because I'm not, attached to the situation it's very easy to see what people are thinking and feeling and of course it's very easy to manipulate them um because I'm not emotionally there I'm like huh that's a really good point thank you for this tip from the dark side very very interesting so I really like what you said just now and sort of you know reframing um Susan's work on emotional agility it's like all right well define our values first because of course for this person you know, they're values were redirected to giving a good performance of a good person <laughs> it's just it very dark right um so yeah it's really about identifying what our values are and then building our emotions around that so I think it's a very a very good point yeah, yeah so, use yeah. our emotions for the right reasons yeah exactly exactly which comes back to social conflict right so what is the, what is the right reason how do we decide who's right who's wrong right yeah, oh, dear. What a kerfuffle. Okay, well, look, this has been a very interesting talk. I feel like we could probably talk all day, um, but we can't do that. (laughs) Exactly. We'll just have like a week-long podcast where we're just venting (laughs) and narrative. Um, But I want to say thank you so much for coming today. And I would also really strongly recommend to listeners that you do absolutely take a look at Sam's course. I mean, I think it's by far the best resource I've seen for mediators, conflict coaches, et cetera, about emotions uh it's really cutting edge so and it's lovely she's got some really nice videos as well that's very good okay so yeah thank you so much for joining me today sam i hope you'll maybe join me again soon and we can keep ranting (laughs) (laughs) um and until next time this is laura may with a conflict tipping podcast from mediate.com see you next time This podcast has been brought to you by Mediate.com. For more information about Mediate.com products and services, please visit us at www.mediate.com.